I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is a special audio podcast exclusive of the program. I'm delighted to welcome back to our podcast version of the show, Catherine Eban, who graced us with her insight into the pharmaceutical industry on the broadcast edition of the program. Catherine, it's a pleasure to speak with you again. Thanks so much for having me back. Appreciate it. Uh, Catherine, of course, is author of Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Um, She was in the process of researching and writing the book when we hosted her. She's also author of Dangerous Doses, a true story of cops, counterfeiters, and the contamination of America's drug supply, and is contributing now to Vanity Fair with some illuminating reporting on the latest pharmaceutical developments amidst the pandemic. But I just wanted to point out from the outset, Catherine, if you go to our website, The Open Mind, and find our episode, you say so plainly how vulnerable America is and and, and was for a pandemic in which our country does not produce medicine, does not make ventilators, Uh, is really ill-equipped to handle the kind of mass production that you chronicle um, that goes on in in countries in Asia principally. But you really said it so plainly and clearly for our audience that I want to thank you for for making that insight then at a time when some people watching may, may have made a mental note, wow, if there is a pandemic in this country, um, we're not prepared and we need to lobby our government and our representatives to ensure that preparedness. So I just want to start by thanking you for saying that on the air. Well, thank you, Alexander. Uh, I appreciate that. I will say, you know, that people who really understand how the supply chain works have been sort of staring down the barrel of this problem for a while uh, and kind of holding their breath because it was very clear that uh, we had, uh, you know, were pharmaceutically completely dependent on India and China uh, for our medicines. So, you know, for those of us who have understood this issue, it always seemed tremendously scary, really nothing short of a national security risk that at any moment um, those countries could, for political reasons or any other, basically withhold a vital medicine. Um, so that was, you know, a major risk. Uh, but what's interesting is that coronavirus has really uh, laid it completely bare. I mean, it has done what, you know, decades of GAO reports and congressional hearings have not been able to do, uh, which is to make us realize how untenable uh, this situation really is. It, it is untenable, and unfortunately, even the emergency relief and response has not adequately mobilized American infrastructure to take the necessary steps um, with the sufficient funding to bolster our preparedness for the present crisis. Um, so is it your observation, based on the reporting you've done, since the emergence of the pandemic that um, even with the billions of dollars that have been poured into the economy, none of it was set up so there could be a medical or civilian or pharmaceutical conservation corps 
to solve this problem or a future pandemic crisis, or am I wrong? Well, that's absolutely correct. And, you know, as many billions of dollars as you can pour into this, the problem is sort of a fundamental structural one, which is uh, we can't make a single antibiotic or IV bag in this country without turning to another country. Um, and so the difficult situation we had previously has now become <clears throat> really catastrophic. Um, so for example, we rely on India for 40% of our finished generic products. Um, the FDA has to go and inspect those, those manufacturing plants. Those um, inspections were always problematic because uh, the FDA would give uh, foreign companies months of advance notice that they were coming. So there was a lot that those manufacturing plants could conceal. But at the same time, it was critical for the FDA to be in there. Um, of course, with this outbreak, what's happened? The FDA can't go into those factories to inspect. So they're relying on companies that they know have previously falsified quality data to submit data to them to prove that their drugs are safe. So, you know, at the, at the very base level, we can't inspect those plants. That's problem number one. Problem number two, President Trump gets up at the White House podium and touts hydroxychloroquine, which there's no data to prove that it is effective for COVID-19. But what happened? His promotion sparked worldwide shortages and led the FDA on this mad scramble to source these drugs from all over the world. The Trump administration then accepted uh, a, do a donation of chloroquine drugs uh, from Bayer, which was coming from a plant in Pakistan that the FDA has never set foot in. So it really has no way to verify the conditions in which that drug was made. So it's it's been, you know, watching this, you can see this escalating uh, set of consequences that stem from the fundamental fact that we are dependent on foreign countries. Uh, and Catherine, that's the fact that you reported when you were on the show, and that's the fact that you're reporting again now. But you have particular insight into this because in your book, you spoke with a number of health authorities, including whistleblowers in India and China, who were telling the story straight when it came to the integrity of drug making uh, and specifically antibiotics, but I'm sure other drugs too. Um, since we can't really rely on our own CDC, we can to an extent relied on Tony Fauci and NIH, um, but we're, we're left in a place where we were following the misinformation we were getting that was slowly coming out of, of China and then repeating the same lines after China had corrected them. So there was a cover up in saying, this is like the flu, then we're repeating this is like the flu, it's not like the flu, or transmission is only from symptomatic people. Not true. So, I mean, we were not only delayed in our response, but we spent time um, rehearsing China's talking points and to an extent, uh, the World Health Organization's talking points turned out to be wrong and then corrected. And we only did it after the pandemic had struck two or three other major countries, Iran, 
Italy, other European countries. The point is this, what wisdom have you picked up from health authorities in those countries um, that potentially for public health reasons are more vulnerable to the spread of this virus in a second wave or in its current incarnation, since we can't be uh, really reliant on our own CDC. I'm wondering where is there reliable information and is any of it coming out of Asia? You know, that is a big question that I don't think we have a great answer to, but let me just say this, which is that um, the U.S. government previously had um, you know, a fairly robust program of syndromic surveillance and experts who were stationed in China um, uh, and, and uh, you know, programs that were established to uh, get early warning about these kinds of uh, pandemics. Um, what we've seen is just a continuous degradation and budget cutting of the programs and the agencies that were, you know, eyes and ears uh, on the ground uh, that would have given us the best information and the earliest warning, you know. But but I think we would also be remiss if we weren't looking at, you know, information is only useful if you're going to use it effectively in a response. And I think what we see now is, you know, at the very top of our government, we, there is just a, a, I mean, every news cycle seems to be a battle over whether science matters. You know, does data from clinical trials matter? Or are we going to run this response on gut instinct? Or, you know, we have perfect data capability to figure out where supplies and protective gear are needed. Are we going to do it that way, or are we going to create VIP lists and give out, you know, PPE, uh, you know, protective equipment for healthcare workers to donors and reality show hosts? So, um, you know, I think you can look at almost every news cycle now through this prism of, of you know, science versus a kind of, you know, patronage system that privileges kind of gut instincts and um, kind of media availability and uh, the news cycle. Um, and Right, know, right. In, in that environment, it doesn't matter if you have whistleblowers because if the science is um, not being heated and falling on deaf ears, then it doesn't really matter. Right. So I think it, you know, it was absolutely extraordinary to see um, the testimony of Rick Bright, who was the head of BARDA, which is the federal agency that um, helps to develop vaccines and diagnostics, um, he came out as a whistleblower and alleged that, you know, he and other government employees were put under huge pressure to um, allow a very sort of broad access program to hydroxychloroquine in the absence of data. And it was his opposition to that that basically led to his being let go as the head of BARDA. He testified before Congress. Uh, he went on 60 Minutes. And the next day, the president seemingly gleefully told the press corps that he himself was taking hydroxychloroquine. Uh, you know, when you look at this and you say sort of, 
why is this the hill that he's willing to die on? I mean, why fight so hard to prove to people or to claim that this old malaria drug works? But I think to some extent, it's really um, about what we, what we privilege and what guides our response. Is it going to be science? Is science going to guide our response? Or is it going to be, um, you know, the gut instinct of our president? And this has been the kind of the, the sort of object um, over which this battle is playing out. But it's really, you know, it's really something, something to see. that As long know, as we don't have the wherewithal and infrastructure power here to make the drugs and to power either a therapeutic or a vaccination regimen that is going to work ultimately. You know, that's why I ask you about what you're hearing from any of your sources in China mm -hmm. or India. China pretty quickly was working on a vaccine. Uh, there were some hopeful signs of a therapeutic out of Japan initially. Um, so we know what's been debunked and, uh, and the drugs that have uh, had uh, only a whiff of promise, but really uh, have only served in extreme measures when it comes to a therapeutic or a vaccine that can be proactive, not reactive. What are you hearing from those, those whistleblowers and those drug companies with which you've, you've uh, interacted and on which you've reported? You know, I would say this, which is, this is a moment that really requires um, international cooperation you know, international cooperation and facts. You know, how many people are sick? Where are they sick? How are they getting sick? What medications appear to work? But I think what you've seen is with every government in the world facing this crisis, their inclination is to circle the wagons, right? So everybody, so suddenly what you saw is as this thing was spreading, you saw governments all over the world banning exports of their products, right? Banning exports of drugs, banning exports of supplies. So we've got a, you know, a global supply chain that is stretched to the limit and all of these governments not only refusing to cooperate, but you know, restricting those supplies. And so I think it is a moment where um, you know, what we're seeing play out is the exact opposite of what is needed, which is global cooperation. And that is exactly what the World Health Organization was supposed to bring us in this moment. Right. So now we need a Hail Mary, Catherine. We need a drug we need, because of the, the lack of cooperation. And I don't expect it to change. Um, and and a, a pharmaceutical innovation that treats this novel condition and disease is, is really either that or, or vaccination, uh, what's going to perhaps rejigger things so that there can be some hope amongst these countries mm -hmm. and the world that we can forge ahead together with some scientific advances. So where do you see the greatest potential for that right now? There was, um, you know, here, here in New York, they're testing antibodies and potential um, you know, poten potential ways to weaponize a, a drug um, that, that's going to um, protect people. Uh, in Oxford, they had a limited run of a, mm -hmm. a vaccination. 
Uh, but my my sense is that the only thing that will um, enable the kind of cooperation you're describing is the beginning of, if you want to call it a cure or a pathway to treatment. You know, every expert that every real expert that I've spoken to basically sounds the same message, which is that there are no Hail Marys here. You know, every real expert throws sort of cold water on the idea of a Hail Mary, um, that, you know, vaccines are a long time away. We may never actually get one. The, you know, treatments that are being tested, um, the you know, the, the results that are being announced that are causing, you know, the stock market to soar again are very modest, you know, and, and um, other people are saying, uh, we may never get clear of this virus. It may always be with us. We just don't know. Um, so I think that, you know, the work of science is slow, deliberate, and exacting, and it's exactly what's required. But I think that um, the Hail Marys uh, that we're seeing proclaimed often from the White House podium are real distractions to the scientific work. You know, whether it's the hydroxychloroquine or it's Lysol or Clorox or light. Um, uh, well, that's, that's certainly true. I, I suppose, you know, the, the getting to a point of targeting the problem is being in the red zone to extend our football mm -hmm. analogy. And so that does require a lot of plays. It's not likely to come in one play, but I'm among the, the folks in the vaccination race. And there are a lot mm -hmm. of different DNA, RNA types of vaccinations being pursued. Uh, then you have the um, possibility of a therapeutic uh, that can mm -hmm. more readily deal with um, coronaviruses or COVID specifically. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess, what are the shorter plays that, that um, you know, and to the extent that the, that the building of this is gonna happen in the United States versus what has been the case for several decades now, which is, mm -hmm being built in Asia, mm -hmm. uh, how is that potentially going to work? You know, so who are the players on the field to make it possible to deliver, um, you know, tens of millions of vaccines? Right. So that is one of the huge questions that is being grappled with, which is if there is, if and when there is a therapeutic, how is it going to be distributed and how is it going to be fairly distributed? So, um, you know, with the news about remdesivir, um, which has gotten so much play, you know, there was a move to license the manufacturer of that to a number of generic drug manufacturers uh, in India uh, for dissemination into, you know, the developing world. Um, so I think that there is a lot of partially i think from that's left over from the aids crisis is you know the the very real concern about um access to treatment you know and how these treatments will be disseminated and then there's the supply chain question of how you even scale up um glass vials for example 
how would you scale up enough glass vials to to meet the demand? Um, you know, how would you spread out the manufacture? Um, you know, how are you going to have the needles? You know, these are all giant questions that are being grappled with now. And I don't think that anybody has an answer to that. And that's the question set amid if and when we even get a therapeutic. Right. But, you know, the, the thing about the vaccination course is that there may be more confidence we can have in the integrity of the outcome um, based on the academic um, research that is enabling, you know, a, a, a trial or a test of, of, a, of a vaccination. Um, I guess I would ask you, you know, are you more hopeful that um, a vaccination rather than a therapeutic can avoid a lot of the pitfall, pitfalls you describe in your book um, and can have a more transparent creation and delivery process than the therapeutic? Yeah, I think there are, um, <laughs> there are a couple of different issues here. I mean, one is um, the safety of a therapeutic and the quality of manufacturing, and that is going to be a giant question. But there is also a tremendous question, I think, around the, the extent to which our current information ecosystem is going to erode confidence in a therapeutic. You know, I think the anti-vaxxers have been kind of intermingled with the um, protesters who are fighting for reopening, you know, and that is all part of fueled by, a, you know, a sort of disinformation campaign that we are seeing. And so the question of whether any therapeutic will even be greeted as legitimate, I think is a whole other question. And frankly, one that worries me more and more. So to try to close on a more optimistic <laughs> note, not deservedly so, but maybe appropriately for the morale of our listeners and our morale, um, what do you see as the most effective roadmap? Um, and, you know, I, I can't help but also remembering in our conversation, and it may have been off camera or in our dialogue, that you had positive things to say about Scott Gottlieb. And at that point, I think he, he was either in his tenure or departing um, and, you know, the successive measures have not been as effective, but it's clear if you follow Scott um, on Twitter that he has a very informed perspective, um, mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Tom Frieden as well. Uh, but if you, if you had sort of a roadmap to put in your fantasy team to combat the crisis and deal with it from all sides, what mm -hmm. would that look like? Um, you know, in terms of the key players, the key companies, um, you know, who, who could forge an alliance here that is clearly not being forged by the Trump administration? You know, in his testimony uh, before Congress, Rick Bright, the former head of BARDA, 
basically said that in answer to a question that uh, the voices of the scientists needed to be unleashed. And to me, it is the only way forward, you know, which is scientists have to lead this response. And I think in, in the countries where you've seen the most successful governmental response, that's what's happened, you know, whether it's New Zealand or Australia, which are, you know, on different sort of ideological sides as far as their leadership, but in both places, uh, they've been guided by the science. And so I think if we are guided by the science and guided by the scientists, uh, there is a pathway out of this. Uh, and we know there is because other countries have been successful. You know, but the concern that I'm hearing from all the experts is if we continue to not be guided by the science and we enter a fall flu season, um, we could see a real resurgence uh, and kind of get into the scale of pandemic that we literally cannot control. So, right. And, and what you're saying too is, is, uh, hero worship of Tony Fauci, however scientifically literate he may be, is not really enough. I mean, I think most Americans are aware of that and they're aware that, that Dr. Burks uh, uh, has not been a second Tony Fauci. And you're saying we need, we need a team of Fauci's uh, and we need someone who's gonna respect them and, and that hasn't happened yet. I mean, that to me is really the key issue is, you know, are we, are we going to have a leadership that is going to put the science first, or are we going to have a leadership that is continuing to erode the credibility of science? You know, science is not just differing opinions. Um, you know, it's driven by data and there are real results that have meaning. But I think um, we are in a very strange moment here um, where science uh, is really an expertise is really under attack. And I think that it has, uh, that has set back the US response tremendously. Catherine Eben, thank you again for joining me on The Open Mind, author of Bottle of Lies. Appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Great to be with you.